To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them to, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Each person should be, remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when, God, when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of, of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Thanks, Paddy. Well, I've found some good news for marrieds who maybe were putting to practice the application of the sermon a couple of weeks ago by having more sex. Apparently, it's never too late. Um, apparently, 65% of Britons over age 50 are sexually active. 46% have sex at least once a week. And 85% say they find sex less pressurized than in their youth. And best of all, 76% say that they find it more fulfilling. And that's truth from the uh, Saga magazine. And uh, if you don't know what the Saga magazine is, don't worry, one day you will. <laughs> Makes a change for adverts for blue rinse and cruises, doesn't it? Well, today we're looking at some very sensitive teaching. Teaching that goes right to the heart of people's lives. A teaching that will have caused people a great deal of pain. Um, teaching about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God's grace would be upon us to help us to understand what his word has to say. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God of all grace. And as we look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that you are for us. You would give your most precious son for us. And therefore, you only want what is best for us. So as we come to your word, help us to know it comes from a, the loving Heavenly Father who gave his one and only Son to die in our place. And therefore, help us to treat it as such. And help us to sit under it, uh, that we might know what it is uh, to live according to your glorious grace. For Jesus' name's sake, amen. Now, it's important that we understand the culture that we live in. 
Uh, there have been actually a huge number of articles uh, this week about the culture that we live in to do with marriage and children. So the uh, front page of the Daily Telegraph, I've got to bring it up, is over there. This week had an article saying that one in five women are unlikely ever to have children. Uh, this is compared to one in nine women just in the last generation. That's because women are increasingly choosing not to have children. Uh, having a family is less valued in our culture. And also they're choosing to have children at such a late stage that they're being affected by issues of fertility. As they move into their late 30s, even into their 40s, they're, they're not able to have children when they finally decide to do so. Uh, the same paper that had a whole page spread on when will Harry and Meghan get engaged? The royal potential marriage governing our news. When will Prince Harry get engaged to Meghan Markle? And what's interesting about that, in terms of our changing culture, is now it's totally acceptable for a member of the royal family in their 30s to be in an ongoing, intimate relationship with another person and not to be engaged. Uh, you might have watched the documentary on the Queen and Prince Philip. I've reached that sad stage in life where I watch documentaries on the royal family. haven't quite got a plate collection on the wall yet, but it's coming soon. And uh, you might have watched that documentary. And, of course, when they got married, well, the engagement was kept secret until she was of an age that it could be announced. But they got engaged very quickly. So our culture's changed. Long-term, non-marital relationships, even amongst our royal family, are acceptable. On Thursday, the Times announced family breakdown poses the single biggest threat to children's mental health once they reach their teens. An analysis of about 11,000 families found that having parents who split up was the strongest single influence on girls' mental health, especially on their emotional problems. It was the joint strongest factor on boys' mental health with strong links to behavioural problems. Another article reported that 74% of adults think that family breakdown and parents splitting up was a serious problem in our society. Interestingly, that 74% of the over 65-year-olds, you put the graph up, can you pop the graph back once? They're all looking at the graph, not at me. The graph will come there in a sec. Not at all. I wondered why suddenly the back of the room was very interesting. Okay. 75, 60, uh, if you go to over 65-year-olds, 74% think that it's a major problem. If you go to 18 to 24-year-olds, only 45% think that relationship breakdown is an issue in our culture. And the article contained this shocking graph that you've all been studying. Uh, do you see the figures there? That in the UK, by the time a child is 12, 60% of children born into cohabiting relationships, and 30% of children born into marriages will have experienced the breakdown of their parents' relationship. Now, what's shocking about that is you might expect me to stand up and say, well, what do you expect? Our countries abandon the good news of Jesus. We no longer have the standards of the Bible. But it's not that simple, is it? Because as you look at the graph, in France, the figures are just 16% for cohabitation and 11% for marriage. If you go to the other end of the spectrum, in Spain, it's just 7% for cohabitation and 5% for marriage. We live in a country with a culture particularly wired to trivializing relationship breakdown, particularly uncommitted to staying with one partner for a lifetime. In continental Europe, it would appear, even without the gospel, people are more committed to staying together. We've got to understand the culture we live in. Because this is like the air we breathe. It's like the water a fish swims in. We just don't notice it. 
And yet all the time it affects our own thinking. And the culture we live in is one where in this sort of postmodern, this post-Christian society, I as an individual are the final authority of what is right and wrong in my life. And the final authority about what I think is right and wrong is the way that I feel. And the culture that we live in, in the UK especially, says that in my relationships, if I don't feel happy, then that is the primary bad thing, morally bad thing that can happen in a relationship. And I think secondly, the culture we live in says that feeling happy in our relationships should feel easy. So, if I don't feel happy, and if happiness don't come easy, then that relationship should come to an end. Because the primary moral value is my happiness. And therefore, in our culture, marriage is a voluntary contract between two people to maintain personal happiness. And therefore, when one or even both of the partners are unhappy, the contract is terminated. And singleness, well, singleness is great because you can do what you want when you want, and you can even have children with who you want when you want them. Now, that culture all the time affects our thinking. It affects our thinking as Christians. It's what we grew up in. It's what we experience through our media. It's what we're bombarded by all the time. It is what we naturally feel. I was uh, just meeting with the hub leaders, and we were looking at a passage in the book of Romans and saying, well, what does the Bible expect that the Christian life should feel like, and what do we as Christians expect our Christian life should feel like? I suspect that as Christians, we think our Christian life, if we just understand God's grace well enough, should feel easy. And when it doesn't feel easy, we've probably got something wrong. We've just not quite understood it. Whereas actually, as we looked at Romans 8, we saw the Christian life feels like a battle where ourselves don't want to do what Jesus wants and the Spirit constantly pushes us to do what Jesus wants. And so we're in a culture of personal comfort and ease. And that has affected our view on sex, on marriage, on relationships. And 1 Corinthians 7, we've already seen, is totally countercultural. We saw last time that it said that sex was just for, between a man and a woman in lifelong marriage. We saw that marriage wasn't about what I can get from someone, but it was a relationship of self-giving to someone. That was where happiness was found, giving of myself to another. And this week we're going to see a very countercultural view of sticking at marriage, of divorce, and of remarriage. Because Paul, having spoken about the importance of the sexual relationship within marriage and spoken about singleness as not a bad thing but, but a gift from the Lord, goes on to speak about the reality of difficulties in marriage. They were normal in Corinth, difficulties in marriage. It's not a new thing in our society. And the first thing he says is when tough times come, reconciliation is our aim. It says in our aim behind me, but it's reconciliation is our aim. Have a look at verse 10 with me. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. Do you see how Paul clearly thinks this isn't going to go down too well in Corinth? So he reminds them, look, this is not an idea I've come up with. This is the word of the Lord Jesus I'm talking about. Whenever Jesus was asked about marriage, he actually went back to Genesis chapter 2. 
and quoted the first verses in the Bible about marriage. He does it in Mark chapter 10, for instance. Let me read to you from verse 6. Jesus replies, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. See, Jesus says, people don't marry each other. God marries people. God unites people together as one flesh. Therefore, marriage is not a contract that we're free to end when we feel like it, because married couples are joined by God. Now, that's very hard for us to accept. It's especially hard if we've been through a divorce or in the midst of a separation. But we need to understand marriage as the Bible talks about it. Not as a contract, but as a covenant. A covenant is a a set of promises between two parties. And throughout the Bible, the marriage is used as a picture of God's covenant with his people. Uh, So, Israel in the Old Testament are described as being God's bride, and God is their husband. That's why when the Israelites go off to worship other gods, it's described as adultery, them prostituting themselves to other gods. And in the New Testament, marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his people, his church. So in Ephesians 5, the church is described as the bride of Christ, and Jesus is our husband. And when we go to the book of Revelation, what do we experience on the last day? We experience the best wedding of all, as we, the bride of the Lord Jesus, made perfect by him, are brought to relationship fully and finally with him, our husband, united in a perfect new world forever. Now that helps us then understand verse 11. Because Paul doesn't just deal with the biblical ideal of marriage, he deals with the inevitable. Look at verse 11 with me. But if she does, that's separate from her husband, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Now we've got again, be careful not to import our legal terms from the UK in 2017 into the text here. You see, separation and divorce were slightly different in Paul's day. Separation was a temporary moving apart. Here, it was all that was available to the woman. She probably went back home because they'd had a pretty rough time and lived with her parents again. There was no social security. That was the only place she could go and live. Whereas divorce was the public declaration of the end of a marriage. And you'll see here, it appears in Corinth, that was only available to the husband. He's the only one who had the legal right to do that. And in Paul's day, if you were divorced, that was a declaration that you could remarry. So Paul's point to wives and husbands is clear. If you must separate, and there may be circumstances where separation is wise, don't get remarried. Aim for reconciliation. Now, you might say, why? Well, because isn't that what God offers us in the Lord Jesus? However much we sin, however much we commit adultery and worship other gods, the the God of selfishness seen in our greed, or the God of pride seen in the way we just refuse to admit when we're wrong, or the God of gossip 
seen when we just want to look better than other people. In whatever way we wreck our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, however we deliberately go about hurting him, his arms are always outstretched on a cross to welcome us back. And welcoming us back costs him. It is personally painful to him. That is his grace to us. See, God is always up for reconciliation. And Paul is primarily saying, we have to have grace-based marriages. Marriages that are not about works. A relationship where you give and I give and you take and I take. And at the point the give and take doesn't work out anymore, well, we go our separate ways. No, marriage is a grace-based relationship. It's a picture of God's love for us and the Lord Jesus, which is hard is a painful love. Now, and it's worth saying a word about reconciliation, isn't it? To, to be reconciled, it does require both parties. Maybe you've been through the heartache of longing to be reconciled to, to a husband or a wife, and they've just refused to come back even to talk about that. It does require both parties. And even in a marriage where the, the breakdown of that marriage lies heavily with one party, that there will always be fault on both sides it'll require a a mutual repentance a a genuine repentance that is accompanied by a prayerful desire to change behavior not just a a lip service i can think of one instance of a of a woman who whose husband was caught in adultery and he was very open about how sorry he was but continued the relationship behind her back for another 10 years and rightly the second time She wouldn't have him back. No, reconciliation involves repentance and a genuine desire to change behavior, not just a lip service. And of course, reconciliation and repentance take time. That that means the door needs to be left open for a future change of heart, and that is difficult. We'll only ever leave the door open for reconciliation in God's strength. See, the problem is never the marriage. The problem is always the people involved in the marriage. Marriage is a great thing given us by God. The problem is the two people coming together in it. And that's actually borne out by the divorce statistics. So if you take, for example, 2006, in that year, the number of people divorcing for the second time was over double what it had been just 20 years earlier. You see, statistically, what is happening is that the people who are getting divorced are more likely to be people who've been divorced in the past. Getting divorced doesn't mean that it'll work the next time. Actually, the likelihood is it's less likely to work the next time. So so when does the Bible allow for divorce and remarriage? Well, in a moment, we're going to see Paul talk about a a situation between a, a believer and an unbeliever. But I think in in the New Testament, Jesus only gives one scenario which ends the marriage covenant. He speaks about it in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 19. Let me read you verse 9. It'll appear on the screen. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. 
Jesus is speaking to some religious leaders of his day who are not interested in doing the right thing or obeying God or even in the quality of marriage. They're just trying to trick him out. But in his answer, he says to his followers that if someone marries another woman, except for adultery, except for marital unfaithfulness, then they're actually creating an adulterous relationship. But, but if there has been marital unfaithfulness sexually, then divorce and remarriage is allowed. That's the exception Jesus gives. I guess because as we've seen over the last week or so, that sex is that ultimately intimate act between two people, an act given by God at the heart of marriage that expresses that union most beautifully and is God's way of binding two people together. So if you take that God-given act and use it with someone else, well then it has the potential to end the marriage. There's still room for repentance and reconciliation. Adultery does not have to end marriages, but Jesus allows for it to end a marriage and for there to be remarriage. Now, let's be honest. We find that teaching very, very hard. That is totally different to the culture that we live in. It's totally different in in one way. As Christians, we're those who want to forgive partners who've committed adultery. But it's totally different in another way in that it says adultery, and the reason we'll look at in a moment, are the only reasons in the Bible that you can remarry once you've been divorced. And that's hard for us because remember how we're wired? We're wired to think this relationship should bring me happiness now. And if it doesn't bring me happiness, and that happiness feels reasonably easy, then this relationship is wrong and it should end. But it's not that, say, the Christians of the past, say our grandparents' generation, were actually more godly than us, or that they had a better way of making marriage work. No, it's just that culturally, they had an attitude that said they stuck at marriage even when it was very, very tough. And that's true of relationships in France or Spain. It's not that the French or Spanish are better people than us. They just culturally have a different attitude to marriage. And we've got to let the Bible not our culture, govern what we believe and the way we behave about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So can I literally beg you that if you're married, especially if you're married and there are things that are hard in your marriage, you get help? One of the saddest things is the way that people think that behind the closed front doors of their house, in some way they have to do life on their own. As though marriage is the area of the Christian life that that no one else can be involved in or help them with. That is just not true. It's why we put on marriage prep before you get married to try and give you a realistic picture of both the joys and the difficulties of marriage. 
That's why we've got these things, marriage MOTs. Why why have we called them marriage MOTs? It's because we believe everyone on a reasonably regular basis should just be taking stock of how their marriage is. In the same way you have to take stock of your car. And some of the time that'll mean, look, we're going well, this is okay. Yeah, there are a few points of tension, but we're working things out in our marriage. But at other times you'll find there is a major issue that needs more serious maintenance work done. Can I I urge you, we're offering them to anyone. If you've been married here after a year, after three years, and after five years, we'll be saying, look, do you want to get together with an older Christian and chat about how your marriage is going? That's why we put on the marriage weekend. One of the uh, sad ironies is that I have visited more couples who've asked me to come round because of serious problems in their marriage over my first 14 months here than we have been able to persuade to go on marriage weekends. Now, let's just be clear about a couple of things. Firstly, marriage breakdown always causes huge pain. That's why the Lord challenges us to live faithfully in marriage. It is always deeply distressing. I very much doubt if you're listening to this or if you're here this evening and you've been divorced, you wouldn't be the first person to say, divorce is rubbish. It hurts. I'm not glad in any way I went through that experience. For the Christians, it's a deep shock because we just never think it'll happen to us. And I know that in this country, sometimes a legal separation, even to go through a divorce, is necessary so that you can be financially secure, so you can have agreed arrangements about children when you just can't agree on anything else. But but can I urge you from these verses that the Lord says always try and keep the door of reconciliation open try not to be the one who shuts the door because that's what Jesus our husband does for us and if you're not married here this evening the key question then for you is are you ready to commit yourself to someone else for the rest of life not actually is she the right one or he the right one for me Marriage is founded on a lack of commitment, not on a lack of chemistry. Chemistry comes and goes. Sometimes it's hormonal. Sometimes it's circumstantial in life. Chemistry comes and grows. But commitment, that is our responsibility. That is what we have control over. And the primary question for single people to ask is, not are they the right one for me, but am I ready to be committed to someone for a lifetime in marriage? So reconciliation is our aim. But what if you're married to someone who isn't a Christian? That's the second issue Paul deals with, remaining. And he says, remaining with an unbelieving spouse is best. Remaining with your unbelieving spouse is best. Have a look down at verse 12 with me. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must divorce her. Now, just before we we dig around there, let me be absolutely clear about something. The Bible assumes that Christians will always choose to marry Christians. Just have a look at verse 39. We're going to end up there next week. Verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Uh, Paul is there saying, look, you might have been married to someone who wasn't a Christian, 
But if that person who's not a Christian dies, you are free to get married again, but you must marry someone who's a Christian. That's just obvious to Paul. Christians marry Christians. The reason is God creates marriage for us to be united together, to be more effective in his service. And if your partner is not in relationship with the God who you're seeking to serve, they will inevitably hamper you as you seek to put the Lord Jesus Christ first. And as though we can all talk and find cases of you know, how flirt to convert worked, that has a lot more to do with God's grace than our obedience to what he says. No, it's God who says, marry someone who shares your convictions so you can serve me. And it appears in the church in Corinth, they thought, well, now I'm married, but I've started to follow the Lord Jesus. What I need to do is get rid of my unbelieving spouse. And you might think that's a rather odd thing to think. You know, one of you becomes a Christian and then the other, you divorce the unbeliever. But you've got to remember, these Christians in Corinth, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament. And when you read the Old Testament about the Israelites, you find they're strictly forbidden to marry people from the pagan nations around them. In fact, in the book of Ezra, in chapter 9, the disobedient Jews are told to get rid of their pagan wives to purify themselves. So maybe in Corinth they were thinking, hey, I'm a Christian now, my pagan partner is polluting me, and the kids, I need to get rid of her. No, says Paul, that's not the case. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, now does this mean that the unbelieving, the non-Christian wife or husband goes to heaven sort of by proxy because they're married to a Christian. And the, the non-Christian children go to heaven because mum or dad is a Christian. Well, well, that can't be true. Actually, if we look at verse 16, it's very clear that Paul believes that the unbelieving wife or husband needs to be saved. Now, what Paul is saying in verse 14 is that the, the partner who isn't a Christian is brought into the community of God's people, the church, through their believing husband or wife. To, to be sanctified is to be set apart, to be made holy. And actually Paul describes in chapter 1 and verse 2 of Corinthians that the church is God's set apart, his holy people. So the point to the Christian husband or the Christian wife is, through your marriage... Your unbelieving partner is brought into the influence of the church. They're brought to hear the sound of the gospel. And the same is the case for your children. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. In other words, while you're there in the marriage, your children are being brought up as little Christians, not as little pagans. But if you get rid of your spouse and maybe even lose your children at the same time, they won't have that benefit of hearing about the Lord Jesus. So stick with your unbelieving wife or husband. Unless, well, verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. In other words, if your unbelieving wife or husband just won't stay with you, they determine to leave you then you're not obliged to try and hunt them down. 
If they abandon you because of your newfound faith or the funny ideas you have or your desire to worship Jesus, well, you don't have to chase after them. And when Paul says you're not bound here, I think by implication that means you're free to remarry. It's likely that in Paul's context, adultery would almost certainly have accompanied a a husband or wife leaving. God's called us to live peacefully. That doesn't mean we'll always feel at peace in what will be a traumatic and deeply distressing experience. But it means we shouldn't be the cause of stirring up trouble. Demanding that an unbeliever behaves in a way that, well, makes no sense to them if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. In the end, our primary desire for unbelieving wives and husbands comes in verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Stick with the non-Christian, husband or wife. Because in the end, what matters is they're saved. They come to know God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't become the reason they leave. But if they do leave, you don't have to run after them. I think this is the second example in the Bible of where Christians are free to divorce and remarry, being deserted by someone who won't come back despite all your efforts at reconciliation. I think also there's a principle here for those maybe who are divorced and have remarried. It's the principle of making the most of your present situation. That's what Paul is calling Christians in mixed marriages to do. Not to try and rewind the clock, but to live out their present situation in a godly way so so if you're divorced and remarried I don't think there's a lot of point in in thinking through what happened in the past more in making this marriage work properly in the way that the bible says it should in this marriage being a marriage that's grace-based not works-based and a word here to those who've been divorced before they were christians Uh, We've already been guided in 1 Corinthians by that verse in chapter 5, a verse that I think is key to the way we think about those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, remember, says this in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. See, Paul's not writing to the local government in Corinth saying, look, you must get people to remain married. He doesn't expect people who aren't Christians to live according to God's word. It's not my business to judge those outside the church, he says. Rather, he's writing to Christians who are empowered by the Spirit of God to live in obedience to the will of God. So my understanding is that those who are divorced before they came to Christ, when, when they come to know the grace of God and the Lord Jesus, that they might have a new desire to seek reconciliation in their marriage. But if their previous partner won't come back to them, then they're free to remarry because they're not bound. Now, they're contentious issues, aren't they? But remember, they were contentious issues in Corinth, difficult issues in Corinth. So Paul ends by giving them a couple of less contentious examples to explain this principle. And here we're going to end with responsibility to the Lord is what matters. Responsibility to the Lord. Look at verse 17 with me. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer 
in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. It's a rule he repeats in verse 20. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And the same thing in verse 24. Should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Paul says it three times in a few verses because this is what he wants us to understand. You see, the issue in Corinth was... Well, I've become a Christian. Does that mean I have to change everything? So I'm a married person. I've become a Christian. Shall I stop having sex because is sex wrong? No, says Paul. Sex is a gift of God. It should be the heart of your marriage. You should be having lots of sex. Oh, I'm, I'm widowed. Do I definitely have to remarry? No, says Paul. You could use your widowhood to serve the Lord. Oh, I'm unhappily married. Should I divorce? No, says Paul. But the non-Christian spouse... They don't have to be divorced. No, says Paul, don't divorce them. You might save them by preaching the gospel to them. And to rub it in, he gives two examples that probably there wasn't a problem about in Corinth, that they're only mentioned in here. Look at verse 18. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was he uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Uh, The two examples are circumcision and, in a moment, slavery. They they were two of the big divides of Paul's day. The first is religious, the divide between Jew and non-Jew. That was a massive divide in the early church. The second is between slave and free, a, a social divide. And circumcision was noticeable. You've got to remember that in the Corinthian equivalent of fitness first, you worked out without your kit on. It wasn't nudist beaches in Corinth, it was nudist baths and nudist gymnasiums. Therefore, if you were circumcised, the other people, certainly the blokes, would have known about it. It was identifiable. Apparently, some people in first century Corinth went to extraordinary lengths to try and hide the fact they were circumcised as Jews. Now, what Paul says here is, as we know, technically impossible. You cannot become uncircumcised, as far as I understand it, once you have been circumcised. The point he's making, though, is very simple. Your relationship with God, it's not about your physical appearance. It's not about your background. Whatever state you're in when you came to Christ, Jew or Gentile, you don't change that. Or or verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. What matters to God is what we do with our lives, not how we look below our waist. Nor is it about your social status. What he says in verse 21 Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. But don't worry if you're a slave or not. If you get free, that's fine. Because what really matters, verse 22, for the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Do not be enslaved by what other people think of you. Do not be enslaved by the view of the world or the culture around you. You were bought with the very blood of Jesus. That means you have freedom in being a slave to Christ. True freedom in obeying the God who loved you enough to die for you. And that's actually the key attitude to getting all our relationships right. At home, at work, as a single person, as a married person. That there's only one relationship that really matters. Our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're responsible to. 
That's who we should want to please. That's where we find value and security. And in the end, that's where we find the love we so desperately crave and need. See, if we all look to Jesus and what he's given us and how he treats us and how he's for us, then and only then will we find the strength to persevere as a single person who desires marriage so much, to persevere as a married person in a marriage in which they're desperately unhappy, to persevere as a person with same-sex attraction who longs to be able to express that intimately and physically with another human being, but, but knows the Lord doesn't want them to. It's only by looking to Christ that we will ever find the strength to live according to God's word. In the end, divorce does not solve our deepest problem. Only Jesus solves our deepest problem. And whatever heartache we've experienced in this world, and whatever struggles we're going through at the moment, only he can give us the strength, the strength that we so desperately need. All that will matter on the day we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ will be whether we have lived according to his word because he has so greatly loved us. And that's where we need to end, isn't it, today? At the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's, as we come to, to the foot of the cross, we're reassured that we do have a husband, a marriage partner, a lover who is faithful and committed and unchanging in his love for us, whatever our sin, however we've treated him. And as we stand at the foot of the cross, it reminds us also that doing what is right according to God, doing the will of our loving Heavenly Father, is often a hard and a painful road where we cry out, Abba, Father, not not my will, but your will be done.